From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 146 of the Killing It podcast. This is Carl, joined today by Dave and Ryan, as always, and it is our second show of the year, so we're, we're well into it now. It's a real year. It's here. <laughs> the, the world did not end officially, and uh, uh, what was it? The uh, I, I saw a thing the other day that I thought was perfect. My, uh, my wife mentioned it to me. Um, you know that feeling when you got a really bad cold and your nose is stuffed up on one side, and then it totally clears? but it moves to the other side and the other side is not totally. <laughs> That's kind of what this new year feels like. I don't know. Same problem, different nostril. <laughs> well, well, let's start with some fun then, gents. What's the TV show you secretly enjoy? See, I, I probably have way more answers of the shows that I secretly slash publicly do not enjoy that everybody else does because I have a problem. Like if you tell me, oh, my God, this is the best show ever, I'll watch it. If everybody in the world says, oh, my God, it's the best show ever, it can't possibly live up to that billing, and so I really have a hard time watching the things that everybody else watches. But what I do watch, I'll go back anytime I got free time and watch a rerun episode of the show Psych, because front to back, episode to episode, that was a brilliant series, and uh, and and I will watch that anytime I got free time. I freely admit my guilty pleasure right now is that Emily in Paris. Uh, it's uh, really nice. bad. It's really actively bad. <laughs> like, but it has is it is like what is such disposable fluff. And for anybody that loves to travel, Paris is just beautiful when when shot in HD and done like that. And so there's this element of like, ah, oh, it's travel fun. This show makes my brain not work at all. <laughs> so it's it's my sort of like, all right, I'm enjoying this secret guilty pleasure. It is travel cotton candy. Yep. <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of TV shows I like. I sort of pick some Netflix thing and go through it until it's done. But uh, I have very much enjoyed a show called uh, Death in Paradise uh, because it's set in the Caribbean and it's full of ska music. And uh, it's just, I always I always find myself humming to their theme song. So Nice. Yeah. And it's a, it, it's a fine show. It's, it's not- I've heard of that one, so now I've got something to add to the world. list. And anytime people will use Scott in their soundtrack, hey, sign me up. Well, think you know PCmatic? Think again. PCmatic is working with MSPs to deliver true zero trust, default deny, endpoint security, allowing only trusted applications and blocking all the rest. A lightweight, simple to deploy, and easy to manage approach to application allow listing. Layering a default deny approach provides MSPs of all sizes the ability to again focus on prevention, and PCmatic delivers this without impacting performance or efficiency. Find out more by visiting PCmatic.com MSP, and be sure to ask about PCmatic's exclusive lead sharing program for MSPs, backed by a primetime national TV campaign. And everyone remember, we're doing it live on January 19th. Join us here for Killing It Live. Register at killingitlive.com and join us for that show. Yeah, that will be awesome. And it'll be in a Zoom platform. So we'll have a little chat box going on and it'll be it'll be excellent. Live and interactive. But uh, 
uh, let, let, let people get their Q&As going right now. Uh, let's dive into our first topic, gentlemen. Um, uh, we are all three avowed and very publicly verifiable cheerleaders of new technology. Uh, as, as industry professionals, as people who've done this for a while, I will say that the reason I sell technology for a living is that I find it absolutely fascinating. And the problem with that is I can find almost any new innovation absolutely fascinating, whether or not it is commercially viable. Now, that little bit of self-awareness is something that I try to pay attention to all the time, but it was stuck in my face and rubbed all over my face when I read the article that we are linking to from Fast Company. Uh, they are highlighting a series of new technologies that get tons of publicity and almost no actual revenue generation via real live commercial deployments. Now, we're not talking about just casual things here like, you know, esoteric edge of the uh, edge of the hype curve kind of stuff. They're talking about the stuff that we talk about. And, and you know, they're talking about, you know, things like big data and algorithm driven machine learning and they're talking about smart homes and artificial intelligence. And basically, the, uh, the assessment that they are coming to is, for all the buzz and all the hype, all of these marketplaces represent a tiny fraction at this point in their history compared to things that came along in just one generation prior, things like e-commerce and internet search and things like that. So uh, the question that I have for you guys is, uh, should we feel bad about this? Or how do we interpret the, the itty bitty uh, results that are being generated by all of this admittedly fascinating technology? One of the things that I think plays a huge role and this article mentions it, is the role of venture capital. There's so much money. It might literally be the case that there's so much money fishing around trying to get a bigger return that they're investing in all kinds of crap that just isn't ready to be <laughs> invested in yet. Uh, I will never forget uh, back in the, the original dot-com boom uh, in the late 90s and, and around the turn of the century, companies would get money for stupid stuff for, for basically telling lies. And then uh, they would get another round of funding and another round of funding. And eventually, if they were lucky, they found something to sell that actually worked. Um, and I think we're seeing that, but it's with a couple of extra zeros added to the end. It's just, it's so much money that everybody who has any wild idea is getting funded and and not expecting results from it. Well, so see, I was going to go with the disconnection from fundamentals of business with valuation. That was going to be my angle, like because because right now, I mean, there, there really are just this ideas of like you don't have to make money, and everyone looks at the like, well, Amazon, and it's and it's and then because of that, there were so many times where it's like, well, you just have to get big, and that's all we care about, and because there's all this money searching around for stuff. All fundamentals have gone away at these very, very large companies. Let me observe that from the vast majority of actual businesses, fundamentals still really matter, that you have to make money to continue to exist. And so, you know, so this is why, like for many of us in the delivery of services, we are actual businesses that have to deliver profits in order to actually exist. And so we have to be very careful not to get swept up 
in the hype. Now, the other thing that I took away from this, Ryan, was the it highlighted these ones that were boom boom sectors that did grow big and ignored the flame outs of many many things from the previous history that we know were in here that did not make it right we've had lots of ones that were also ones that just didn't get there for the same reasons right they weren't actual viable things in the late 90s and such like that that all flamed out but they were supposedly the next big thing too See, and, and I remember, based on your analysis, Carl, um, I, when we talked about WeWork last year, there was a point where we were discussing the, uh, the flame out of that concept, and yet it was actually still a really good idea from the fundamentals. But the way that venture capital treated them, it was, it was we, we've got this good little idea, and we think we could get it to $100 million, $200 million, $500 million in, in total revenue, and it would get a valuation over a billion. Wouldn't that be a great idea? But venture capital came back to them and said, well, if you can't show me a route to $10 billion, then I'm not interested. I'm going to take my ball and go home. Uh, and so they were almost required by their VCs to fake it and then get that thing overhyped and underperforming. I'm, I'm sure that that's true, Dave, to your point of a lot of the things in these categories. What, what causes me to stop and go, hmm, is the things that I still continue to believe are massively viable opportunities for the future, yet they produce incredibly little viable commercial activity today, right? And, and if you look at things like blockchain with a total North America market share, no, no, not North America, global, right? Total global market share of dollars spent on blockchain technology right now is $1.9 billion per year. Augmented reality, $11 billion a year. Commercial drones, only $6 billion. Now, in an unrelated note, I read an article this morning because it, it, it caught my eye because it was absolutely fascinating. And they were pointing out, you know, one of the secret superstars of events and sporting industries is the porta potty industry because you can't have a large gathering of humans without providing a few porta potties, right? And they said, oh, yeah, by the way, the, the annual market size of the porta potty industry, $77 billion. A year globally. That's a lot of shit. I, I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, on, on one side, I was like, wow, that's a lot. And on the other side, I was like, oh, and blockchain only generates 1.9 billion. Now, uh, I would I would not argue that the porta potties are cutting edge technology, but I would say as as technology evangelists, maybe we all need to go back to Dave's comment on business fundamentals and say, let's let's focus less on the whiz bang and more on can this thing actually be a business? You know, it's interesting. Uh, Daniel Burris always talks about, you know, the future and how to predict the future and whatever. And he makes a point that, you know, if you look ahead five, 10 years, even 15 years, all of the technology that's going to change your life probably is in existence today. This has always been the case. It takes a long time for things to go from idea to reality to functionality and then to being something that's actually popular uh, and useful. And so it may be that we're just at this point where things have become more complex. We talked about complexity uh, a few weeks ago. Maybe things are so complex that that, that lead up time is just growing so much because now in addition to getting 
one thing right, you have to get a million connections right, and you have to get the the ethics of it right, and the artificial intelligence piece of it right, and the legal piece of it right, and the regulation piece of it right, and in, in some sense, all those things at some level existed. Now it may be that you just got to get them all right, and it takes an extra five years or ten years or. Didn't we literally just have a conversation about complexity and is <laughs> like a topic now It's like, yes, I think that's probably ties in where we're talking about here. But of course, we run out of time. Uh, I'm going to move us on to my favorite topic. Anybody who listens to business tech knows that I'm totally fascinated with remote work and future of work predictions, partly because nobody knows the <laughs> joy of this space is that everybody is conjecturing without actually knowing how it's going to go. And there isn't one answer. But I was fascinated by an article in Vox that we're linking to, which talking about three ways remote work could remake America. And it dived into how uh, they actually were talking about it was less around this idea of will it consolidate spaces. And what was actually sort of more interesting to me was the areas around remote work and politics, how it could actually change the political landscape with people being in different locations. Or, of course, it could end up with changes to climate change with EV, EV changes and some of the reduced energy costs. Guys, I wanted to sort of throw this one out either for you to call from this one or give me yours. What are your favorite of these remote work predictions that are going around right now? Well, I would just point out uh, that right now, as we're recording this, the brand new mayor of New York is uh, in a brouhaha because of his statement that, look, a lot of these poor paying jobs, people have to actually show up. You cannot do them remotely. And, you know, maybe he didn't word it the way he should have. But, you know, stuff happens. Um, it, but it's true. Everybody knows it. Like, if you have a job flipping burgers or, um, you know, cleaning things, you got to be there. You can't be anywhere else. And you can't take that job from an office building in New York City and say, no, we're going to work. We're going to we're going to clean the building in New Jersey. Like, that's just not practical. Well, there's a category of that, but they've even got people doing drive throughs remotely now. There's new video. McDonald's is trying out video tech to be able to run the drive through from your home. Well, they, they <laughs> talked about uh, having drive throughs be um, wired up to uh, people in India about five years ago, and that never happened. So, you know, it's got to be practical as well as uh, sure save them money and make them money and so forth well and if you think about it carl because uh, you know the the further statement that the new mayor of new york was making was hey all you bankers we need you to come back to the office so that you can support the local economy that drives the business for all of those little jobs right, the office needs to be cleaned but not if nobody's there <laughs> exactly and somebody needs to flip that burger but not if nobody is actually coming into town for work i i think to your point dave the the biggest dynamic that I focus on these days in this concept of remote or hybrid work is that it is now a permanent phenomenon. It was a temporary emergency thing. It was a novelty. It was an annoyance. And it has arrived at the level of even jaded bosses who previously have believed, well, this is a temporary thing. And damn it, we're never going to stay this way. We're going to bring everybody back in. Even those managers are starting to look at it and go, actually, you know, for the category of knowledge work that can be performed remotely, this is no longer a temporary phenomenon, and it's becoming not just a, a thing you have to manage around, but it becomes an element of the work-life balance calculation. 
a benefit that gets calculated into a recruiting conversation. It's, it's a conversation that I think is now something, it's no longer option, right? Now, I will say, I think that the observations on the population distribution they are very much spot on, right? Because we've lived through, in the last five to eight years, a, a, a more and more obvious reality where politics and business and economic decisions are not red versus blue. They are not west versus east, north versus south. They are city versus rural, right? Like the interests of the populations have become very much divergent along, do you live in a big city or do you live in the country? Well, you live in a big city because that's where your job is and that's where you go and yada, yada, yada. If you can have the same career and the same working benefits of salary from that big time knowledge worker gig and do it from wherever, well, then I do believe there are a lot of people who will decamp from the cities and say, I don't like the traffic. I don't want to be in the congestion, but I did want to do that big city job. So I'm going to go do it from over there. And if you redistribute the population, I have for many years been been urgently telling people, because I grew up in a part of the West where, you know, you tell me the world's overcrowded. I say, get on an airplane, come to Salt Lake City, get in a car with me, and let's drive six hours in any direction. And then you tell me the world's overcrowded. World ain't overcrowded. We're just not using the space very efficiently. <laughs> I think remote work can begin to address some of that. See, I think it's interesting, Ryan, because I think the changes are going to be more subtle than that. Because so I'm, I'm going to use myself as the example to describe a larger piece. I've worked remotely for 15 years now, like definitely the last you know, 10 since I saw the MSP. But even then, we were remote in the MSP. I live in the Washington, D.C. metro area not because of job, but because I like the region. Like, I like this area, right? I like the amenities that the city itself has. I have a lot of friends here. I have a lot of connections here. I can drive an hour and a half to the mountains. I can drive three hours to the, to the, uh, to the coast. I can be in New York in four hours. Like, I, like, it's got a great airport. Like, I like here, and I am here not because of a job. I am here because of the region and my connections to the region. I believe that the changes will be more regional in that there will be more collections of mixed use and there are already, I'm already seeing it in terms of like the area, in terms of like the what's springing up in mixed use communities, much less city center versus suburbs and much more everything blends together a little bit and it's about regional transportation and getting from area to area. But I've got all these amenities that are fun within this close circle. And I think a lot of areas are gonna look at redistributing within a area versus this vast dispersion because people come together for reasons that are much more than work they are social connections they are to build a community they are they and, and particularly like for young people it's to meet other you know to meet a mate to find out like there are reasons to come together and having vast dispersion isn't great but having local dispersion is and i think it will reshape metro areas more subtly than this dispersion just anywhere well and this is literally the last two years has been the uh 
sociologist full employment act for the next 10 years or 20 years. <laughs> you know, studying all of this is, is literally going to go on the rest of our lives because this is a period of change like very few in history. You know, I've been shocked during this whole period of uh, the pandemic of how quickly and easily people en masse leave cities and sell their houses and go buy another house out in the boonies. And it's like, wait a minute, I have never casually and suddenly sold a house just because I, I, a whim struck me, you know? And so the, the, this idea that so many people are willing to do that and then like, oh, wait, no, it's time to go back. Selling their houses and rushing back to the cities and driving up the prices again. It's like, wait a minute, what are you people doing? I'm, I'm quite struck at how intensely short-sighted the world is and i never realized it <laughs> but you know it, it's it's a pretty amazing but i do think there's a longer term uh issue of uh, a certain piece of the society the segment of the workforce that can work remotely and will work remotely that's changed forever i do think it's much smaller than Certainly, Dave and I have debated this a hundred times in the last hundred <laughs> discussions. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I think it's smaller than most people think uh, in terms of the permanent effect. But I really appreciate, as Mr. Relax Focus Succeed, that there is that element of work-life balance that's being put into all of this. That that's a piece of the equation you can't ignore. Um, and more and more, I think we're seeing all of these elements are sort of getting thrown into the discussion instead of discussing each one of them separately, whether it's work-life balance, being able to manage people, uh, being able to socialize at work, you know. Well, that's that for me also, Carlos, the, is the big point, is, is too often in these business conversations, we're ignoring the personal side of, of motivation, which I think is way more important right now for so many people that are making decisions about their life of which their career is part well, especially of especially right now if you're a bigger employer and you say i don't care you show up at work what's happening people say oh, oh yeah i gotta Thanks. go now. i'm gonna go work for somebody else have a nice day right and, and that's and that is that's really important for leaders in organizations either owners leaders executives but also they're also managers to understand that look look you are not the total pat like piece to be thought of. You're not the total package. You have to factor in the larger forces in your decision making and thinking. See, and, and I think that might be the ultimate takeaway is that people will start to make their decisions about work in the context of life, not just in the context of work and all the sacrifice that goes with it. Uh, I, I, I do have to observe, though, because Dave, I agree with you. People like where they live for a reason, most of us do, right? We, we live where we live on purpose, uh, but Dave might win the badge today as the, the Chamber of Commerce representative for his hometown because Dave actually said with a straight face that Dulles is a really nice airport. Um, so <laughs> that, that qualifies you for true believer oh, status there. Look, look, here's my, I make this statement and then we'll move on. I've said this every single day. It is a great endpoint airport. I exit it. The rest of you get trapped in it. It goes places... <laughs> Lots of places, but I don't have to sit there. Yeah. The rest of us have to run a marathon across it. In order to Where I live, if you check the box that says non-stops only, you don't get a lot of flights. Uh, <laughs> exactly, but that's right. another topic. <laughs> yes, so so topic number three, we, we want to talk about something that's sort of been in the background for uh, most, of, most of the last at least six months, maybe a year, and that is the chip shortage with cars. 
One of the things that's happened just recently, Qualcomm announced that they're making a deal to provide a certain kind of, of chipsets uh, specifically for manufacturers of cars. And I think it's what's interesting to me is this whole concept that they, there's a, you know, we have a name for uh, the operating system for our phone. We have a name for all these things. Now we have the Snapdragon cockpit chip, which had been in short supply. And now we've actually got a, a name to go with the kinds of chips that have to be sold en masse in order to be able to begin building cars. And it's interesting to think because people say, well, you know, why do you need a chip for this, a chip for that? Well, these aren't chips necessarily just for running the engine or fine tuning it. There's a lot of technology in the cockpit now. Uh, I'm glad I live to the age where cars have cockpits instead of just a seat. But, you know, um, it, it's interesting to me because I wonder if we are entering a new era of thinking about cars where we think about them as being truly high-tech technology and that once you once you conceptualize the interior of the car or the driver's area as a cockpit, then you can think of it in terms of something that can be built and sold separately and put into a variety of different cars. I think it only and gets I, to be called a cockpit when it can fly. I think that's <laughs> the, I think like distinctly we have to draw the line on that one. I'm not calling it a cockpit until it lifts. You can't call it a cockpit if it's not a flying car. It has to be a flying car and I don't see that coming <laughs> But Maybe that's sooner than you think. But you make, a, but you make an, a point over cars are more a collection of software than ever before and a collection of technology more so than anything and that's why the chip shortage is such well, an and advantage. i'll just note that this comes out of consumer electronics show oh yes exactly. <laughs> like like i mean the, the, which which cars by the way have a huge showing because they are at some level consumer electronics oh um, absolutely they and, are now. And, I, and that is i mean it, you know to to you know to justify their their valuation at some level, Tesla has revolutionized the way people think about cars because the cars get better with just software upgrades, which is an actual thing, um, as opposed to older cars, which you know generally didn't. <laughs> um, you know they are they are changing the way that that's thought of. What I'm I'll be really fascinated for me to, to think about this article and say like, are designers going to be really thinking about chip? chip design and chip supply very differently coming out of this period of shortage um, because none of them want to be stifled by you know in sales by supplies and i and we know fabrication plants take four to five years to spin up if we project out how different will this marketplace look at farther out i predict it's going to be significant. I don't think it's going to be a small change here or two. I think they're going to look and say, nope, chip manufacturing is a critical thing. I think governments are going to view it as a national security thing. And we're going to start seeing changes now. Of course, they won't be immediate, but that's the trend. You know, that's absolutely the direction we're going because I was having a conversation with somebody who actually does this kind of systems integration design and execution for the automotive industry. And they were, I was lamenting, 
Well, if you just have a chip shortage in your car, doesn't that just mean your nav system isn't going to work and, and everything else will work fine? And he reminded me, no, uh, everything in your car has a chip. The little switch that makes your window go up and down, the, the air conditioner turning on and off, irrespective of the control in the dashboard. There are quite literally hundreds of chips in every single automobile, and they are no longer just a mechanical system. They are an electronic and a digital system. Uh, one of the client groups that we've worked with for a number of years is a, a, it's a company acquired through a number of acquisitions called Mendix and they do a CAD design, if you will, on, a, on, an, on, on an electronic or an atomic level where you're designing circuit boards as well as the things that circuit boards go into. And one of the application sets that they feature is around designing the electronics, the wire harnessing, and then all of the subsystems for cars, trucks, buses, etc. If you ever want to see a schematic that will make your eyes bleed, look at the wire harnessing and all of the electronic componentry inside of a modern passenger car. It is absolutely mind-boggling and yet inevitable from a systems integration point of view, right? We can't just run these things mechanically. They require the technology. And, and that sort of affects the way I was going to actually respond to Dave because Ryan what you're talking about is super high-end sophisticated stuff where a lot of the, the car has to interact with its environment which didn't used to be it didn't used to be anything but a mechanical thing um, but Dave when you were talking about are we going to change the way we think about this especially with regard to shortages the first thing I thought of is there are companies that make a living focusing on one generation old technology because it's cheaper and it's more plentiful. It can be easily made with uh, stuff that's not cutting edge technology. And so they can make a ridiculous amount of money. And it may be that there will be car manufacturers who say, well, you, let's use the older chips. They're easier to make. They're cheaper to get. You, you know, there's not a shortage, blah, blah, blah. But there's a limit to how much functionality they can have. Right. The basic functions of 10 years ago are easy with old chips. The basic functions of today are more difficult. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in this era where somebody's going to want to capitalize on older technology, but somebody else is going to capitalize on forward looking technology. Well, let me give you a great example of a company that does that that you might not have thought of. And it's Nintendo. Oh, yeah. Nintendo's entire gaming strategy has been slightly older technology that gets creatively used. Their stuff is never bleeding edge. And last I checked, as a general rule, not every system, but they do very, very well with them. And that is they're doing exactly that model. Well, and my guess is you're going to see a design spec come out of an unexpected place. And that is NASA can literally write the book on how to create technology that we build today and we won't use it for 12 years when this thing finally gets where it's going and we have to turn it on and then we have to send an update. Uh, that 
approach to technology is going to work its way into the car business. It simply is so that you can sell a chip today and upgrade it five years from now. Absolutely true. And, and again, that is one of the grand limiting factors of the forward-looking value of today's car systems. The car is the computer that is in it today, and only a few of them are significantly upgradable remotely. Tesla is a great example, right? You can update your car and give it new functions, not just, not just new configurations, but literally your car will physically perform differently because it was updated over the air. That will become a brave new world and, and some fascinating possibilities. So this is a cool topic. But sadly, it's the end of the topic because we're at the end of the show. I just want to give you a quick reminder, go to killingitlive.com and sign up so that you can join us next week where we're going to do a show, this show actually, and then tomorrow we're going to do, or a week from tomorrow, do Killing It Live. So join us then. And in the meantime, this has been episode 146 of the Killing It, Kill it. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.